This week is another double Parsha, Matos and Masse, the last two Parshios of the Book of Numbers of Bamidbar. Matos means tribes, like the tribes of Israel, and Masse is the journeys, the journeys of the Jewish people in the wilderness. We're at the end of the 40 years of the trip to the wilderness, and we are about to reach the book of Devarim, of Deuteronomy, which is essentially the last few months of these 40 years and the last few months of Moshe's life, and where Moshe is preparing the Jewish people for entering the land of Israel and giving them his direction and guidance and a little bit of criticism as well, and preparing them for what uh, lies before them. So uh, the parsha, the first parsha, Matos, begins with a uh, with the laws of nedarim, of vows. Now it's important here. The very first verse of the parsha, it has uh, a unique uh, theological insight that is really one of the most important aspects of our faith. And uh, as an, an example of that, Maimonides dedicates a whole chapter towards parsing this out. Parsha begins. Moshe speaks to the heads of the tribes of the Jewish people to tell them, Zehadavar, this is the matter, Ashatziva Hashem. Moshe is communicating his prophecy that he received from the Almighty to the Jewish people. But what's interesting, Rashi points this out, the Talmud points this out, is that the, the precise word usage that Moshe employs is Zehadavar, this is the matter. And Rashi tells us, that of all the prophets that have taught the Jewish people, Moshe is the only one that says, that communicates his prophecy, Zehadavar. All the other prophets, they say, so says God. Moshe, when he speaks, he says, this is the word of God. And Maimonides uses this to differentiate between Moshe's format of prophecy and the format of prophecy of all the other prophets. Moshe is called the father of all prophets, he's the greatest prophet. But Maimonides tells us, and the Talmud tells us, and Yavamas as well, that Moshe's prophecy is qualitatively different than all the other prophets. All the other prophets, they experience the prophecy via, uh, uh, via imagery, and they have to uh, extrapolate the lesson from the imagery and communicate that to the people. So, uh, last week we read about uh, Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is, has a, a, uh, an image of a staff made of almond wood to teach him the lesson, just like the almond wood grows very fast, so too, if the Jewish people don't rectify their ways, their destruction is going to come very fast. Uh, or a bloated pot. And these are images that the prophet needs to deconstruct and interpret, and then pull out the lesson, and communicate the lesson onward. And that's why the Talmud tells us, You don't have two prophets that prophesize in the same style. Because every prophet, every prophecy has to be filtered through the lens of the individual prophet and communicated onwards. Not so Moshe. Moshe, he communicates, he prophesies Zehadavar. This is the word of God. It's direct verbal communication. This is the exact word of God with none of Moshe's commentary. 
as if Moshe is a funnel, Moshe is a conduit, Moshe is a pipe that is directly communicating the word of God to the people with none of Moshe's insight added. The Talmud tells us that we believe that the Almighty is the author of the Torah. It's not Moshe, it's God. Moshe, well, he's the scribe. He's the, uh, he, he, he is the one who transcribes it. But the author, the, the, the words come from God, and Moshe writes it and doesn't add anything of his own. So if you ask, what is the, truth, what is the Jewish tradition of, uh, as to the authorship of the Torah, it would be incorrect to say that Moshe is the author. Moshe is the one who wrote it down, but that's not the authorship. He didn't come up with any of the content himself. And in fact, the Talmud goes so far as to say that if someone claims that Moshe wrote even one verse, even one sentence, even one word of the Torah, not God, then that would be uh, antithetical to Jewish faith. Kidvar Hashem Baza, such a person, is embarrassing and shaming the word of God. Moshe, yes, he was the vessel through whom God's communication came to the Jewish people. But it was a vessel that did not withdraw any of the content and did not contribute towards any of the content. It was a direct power, it was a direct pipeline. Zadavar, this is the word that God commanded. And that's an important insight. And that's why if you look at Maimonides' 13 Principles of Faith, when he talks about prophecy, he does dedicate a principle of faith to the difference between the prophecy of Moshe and the prophecy of everyone else. And that's why the Torah, the mitzvot that we have from God, are given to us via prophecy, but not via the prophets of everyone else, except for Moshe. It's only through Moshe. Because when the Almighty is communicating to us Torah, we want to know that we have the Almighty's Torah and not any human contribution towards that corpus of instruction. So the first mitzvah here in the Torah is, or the first section here dedicates is dedicated to talking about a neder or a vow. A vow is when a person commits to himself, him or herself to do something or to withhold from doing something. There's a whole book in the Talmud dedicated to the exact details of these laws. But the general thrust is that whatever a person commits himself to do, they must, they're mandated, they're obliged to obey, and they cannot desecrate their words, and if they do, it's a very severe sin. In fact, the day, Akol Nidre, which is the first prayer of Yom Kippur, is is when we absolve ourselves from our Nidarim, from Kol Nidre, all the vows we take... uh, the time on Yom Kippur to say we want to cleanse ourselves from our vows because it's a very grievous sin when someone commits to do something and uses the terminology of vows to commit it, that becomes as if there's a new mitzvah. We have 613 mitzvahs from God. Through the power of our speech, through our vows, we can actually add new mitzvahs that didn't exist prior. And thus, when someone commits themselves to do something and they do not explicitly say, I am doing this or I'm committed to do this, believe nether, without a nether, without a vow, then there's a new mitzvah. And the mitzvah is that they cannot go against their word in verse 3 of our Parsha. And if they do that, it's a transgression of a Torah mitzvah as well.
And the commentators point out here that this really shows the power of, uh, of the human, the greatness of the human. Uh, we're told right away at the beginning of the Torah that man is created in the image of God. And the commentators stress that just like God can create mitzvahs, through our vows and our oaths, man can do that as well. And that's the holiness of man, the power of man, but if it's used improperly by making unnecessary vows or by not fulfilling them, then it's a big problem because then you transgress a mitzvah in the Torah. Uh, Therefore, it's always discouraged for someone to make vows. And when they commit to do something, to commit to doing it without a vow. What happens if someone makes a vow? So they have to fulfill it. But our parsha de- uh, deals with a situation where the vows can be annulled or the vows can be revoked. So a person who is under the jurisdiction of another person, like a, a daughter to her father or a wife to her husband, those vows that she would make are subject to his approval. So if he hears her vow and he's silent, that is akin to approval. And therefore, that vow goes through. However, if the husband tells the wife, I'm sorry, I don't agree to that, he has the ability to annul it and thus to save her from being subject to her vow. Uh, additionally, uh, and this is why, by the way, the Parsha begins that Moshe is communicating this section to the heads of the tribes because they were the leaders, there is a means through which someone can Uh, expunge themselves from their vows by going to the rabbi or going to the court and explaining that they didn't understand the extent of their vows. They didn't realize that it would be, um, it would be, it would affect them like that. And had they known they wouldn't have done it, and that would be enough to annul the vow. So for example, the Talmud tells the Rabbi Akiva, when he got married to his wife, Rachel, he was an ignorant shepherd. And his wife, Rachel, came from a very wealthy family. Her father was the famous Kalba Savua, the uh, philanthropist of Jerusalem. But when he heard that his prized daughter is going to marry his shepherd, his ignorant shepherd, he made a vow that she cannot benefit from his property. And then years later, he lost track of his family. He doesn't know that Rabbi Tiva is the great scholar, the leader of the generation, and he is indeed his son-in-law, he feels bad that he kicked his daughter out of the family. And he goes over to this great rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, and he asks if it's possible for him to fall into the category of getting annulment. Had he known the impact this would have had on his family, he wouldn't have made this vow. And Rabbi Kiva tells him, oh, by the way, uh, you were worried that your new son-in-law would be an ignorant bore his whole life. Shalom Aleichem, how are you? I'm your son-in-law. And of course, the vow was annulled, because had he known that his son-in-law would become a great Torah scholar, he would not have made the vow. So those are the basic rules of vows. Chapter 31 begins, uh, talks about the war with the Midianites. So the Jewish people, if you remember the story, they uh, were attacked in unconventional means by the Midianites and the Moabites. They already swamped some of the Moabites as well. Now they're going after Midian. And 
uh, Moshe is told, attack Midian, exact revenge from their unconventional attack against you, and then you'll die. And uh, one of the the haze, so to speak, that's looming over this whole episode is the fact that Moshe is told that doing this will open the door for his demise. And of course, if you knew that doing something would lead to your death and not doing that will withhold your death, of course, you'd be motivated to maybe procrastinate a little bit, to, you know, find other stuff to do get your affairs in order before you actually do that. And the sources tell us that even though Moshe knew that his death hinged on this matter, if he goes to war against Midian and they're successful, then the next thing that happens to him that he dies, still he took this as the, uh, this is the commandment of God and he wants to do it without delay and with joy. So they nominate from the crowd a thousand men from each tribe for a total of 12,000 tribes. And at the helm of this army is Pinchas. And they're about to attack the Midianites. Now verse 3 tells us that this is exacting the revenge of God on the Jewish people. And Rashi asked the question, wait a minute, didn't they attack the Jewish people and not God? So how come the verse tells us that this is an affront to God that needs to be remedied, needs to be reconciled? God wasn't attacked, it was the Jewish people that was attacked. Says Rashi, a very famous idea, that because they stood up against the Jewish people, Therefore, it's as if they stood up against God. And the idea behind this is, and this is indeed the role of the Jewish people, we say the Jewish people are the chosen people. What does that mean? We're chosen, we're better, or we have a specific role to play? According to Jewish philosophy, Abraham committed himself in the life of his descendants and the nation that would ensue, to a certain responsibility. And that responsibility is what is nominally known as tikkun olam, fixing the world, bringing God into the world. And that, of course, is done with Torah and with mitzvos, and that's the national role of the Jewish people. And when you understand Jewish history in that lens, a lot of things make sense. For example, we're told that we're going to be sent into exile wandering throughout the lands. Well, Why? Why specifically does our nation have to be subject to the plight of being an itinerant nation? Well, if we understand the role of the nation, maybe the role of the nation is to impact the world. Well, if you live on an island, you could be great, sure, but how are you going to impact the world? So one of the theories as to why the Almighty subjected the Jewish people to a very chaotic life of upheaval and persecution and wandering from place to place, well, maybe there's a certain amount of influence that the Jewish people need to dispense all over the world. Well, how can you, how can you dispense influence all across the world and bring God into the world and fulfill 
the destiny and the legacy of the Jewish people and what Abraham had began, maybe to do that, you need to spread your wings. And you spread your wings, maybe not in the most comfortable way, but in a way that's very efficient to actually spread your influence throughout the world. But that's what we mean when we say chosen people, is that we're chosen by God because of Abraham. Because Abraham chose God and committed himself to it, the Almighty says, okay, you're going to be the nation that is going to be, so to speak, the ambassadors of God in the world. And what happens is that there are fringe benefits to being God's ambassadors. You know, Just like if a country sends an ambassador to a foreign land, they take upon themselves the responsibility of protecting and supplying that ambassador with whatever they need to fulfill their duty. And if that ambassador is attacked, God forbid, well, what happens? The country itself feels like they're attacked. Well, if we're God's ambassadors in the world, and we're the ones who committed ourselves to fulfill His will here, and then we're attacked... The Almighty says, you know what? The Jewish people are attacked. It's as if I'm attacked, and therefore I'm going to assist in the battle that uh, will result from this attack. The great Rabbi Israel Salanter, uh, of uh, the giant of the 19th century, he once likened the world to a expensive hotel. And the idea being, and this is found in, in many Jewish sources, that whatever person benefits from this world, whatever person cashes out in this world, that will reduce from their share in Olam Abba, the world to come. So if a person does a mitzvah, or does a good deed, or studies Torah, they acquire a certain measure of reward commensurate to that deed. Now ideally, you'd want to have that reward cashed out in Olam Abba, in the next world. Because in Olam Abba, like the Mishnah tells us, it's better to have one hour of pleasure in Olam Abba more than all the pleasures of this world combined. So if you were to take, lump together, all the pleasures in this world and condense it all to one pill or one experience, that would not be equal to one second in Olam Abba. So one of the things we want to avoid is cashing out too early. We don't want to use up our reward in this world. If you remember all the way back in Jacob, in, in, in Genesis, Jacob was worried that he had used up his reward, and therefore when he was about to face Esau, his brother, he was concerned that his stockpile of reward had been depleted. But that's a Jewish theme. That we don't want that that using up reward here reduces it for Olam Abbas. Says Rabbi Israel Salanter, this world is like an expensive hotel. You think everything is free. Look at the you go to a hotel and you look at the mini bar and like, wow, there's so many drinks and so many little whiskey bottles and all these things I could take. And you don't realize is that actually, yes, it's free for the time when you check out of the hotel. They go through and inspect all the things that you had taken from the from the from the mini bar, and they charge you a tremendous premium on those uh, on those pleasures. And therefore, the the idea is to try not to 
utilized too much in this world because that will reduce what you have in the next world. However, what's the exception? There are some times when you go traveling on business and you can put everything on the company's expense. Or better yet, if you're an ambassador for the United States, all expenses are covered. You go to the hotel and raid the minibar. No problem. You know why? Who's picking up the bill? It's your host country. Not your host country. It's your sending country. It's the country that is your employer. If we are God's ambassadors in this world and we do our best to try to improve, so to speak, the interests of God in this world and to make his impact known and to disseminate his teachings and to publicize his existence like Abraham did. Abraham called out, Vayikra B'Shem Hashem. He taught the world about God. If we do that, if we act as God's ambassadors in the world, you know what? The minibar is on our employer. The Almighty is, so to speak, sending us. We're his ambassadors, and therefore we do not lose, we don't have to pay the hefty bill when we check out, so to speak, of our fancy hotels covered by the Almighty. So Moshe, he, they select uh, 10, uh, 12,000 armed soldiers. Pinchas is at the head, the helm of this army, and they go out uh, with all their paraphernalia, and they attack Midian, and they kill the five kings of Midian, as well as Bilam, Bilam the nemesis of the Jewish people, and they uh, assemble an enormous amount of booty, and uh, the next uh, sections deal with how this is divvied up, how the booty is divvied up. So, Firstly, Moshe gets uh, a little bit disappointed at the heads of the army. So verse 13 here says that Moshe and Elazar and all the elders of the assembly went out to meet this conquering army outside the camp. Moshe was angry with the commanders of the army, the officers of the thousands, the officers of the hundreds who came from the legion of battle. He was upset that the women who had contributed towards the downfall of the Jewish people at the end of Parshas Balak, the women who contributed, who participated in those orgies uh, with the Jewish people, they they weren't killed. They were the ones who had primarily caused this war, and they got off scot-free. So that's what happened. When Moshe got, disapp- got, got upset. And Rashi tells us a very important lesson here, that Moshe, he's the leader of the people, And he goes over to speak to the heads of the army and tell them, well, you were the leaders and you had the ability to protest and you didn't. And this idea that whomever has the capacity to protest and they don't, they become complicit. Talmud tells us in the book of Shabbos that there was a, uh, a time in our history when the Jewish people were deserving of punishment. And there was this arrangement where the Imani tells the angel, well, don't make a, a, a black mark on the foreheads of the tzaddikim, of the righteous people, 
that they should be spared from the plague. The Jewish people are deserving of a plague, but the righteous people, they didn't participate in the, pl- in, in the reason why the plague has to happen, and therefore they should be spared. But the Talmud continues that the persecuting angel said to God, wait a minute, they have the ability to protest. They were leaders after all, and they were quiet, and they did not protest when they saw the other people behaving in an improper way. Therefore, they're complicit. Says the Mahdi, you know what? You're right. Don't make a black mark on the foreheads of the tzaddikim of the righteous. Make a red mark and attack them first. So this is an interesting uh, idea, philosophically, that when someone has the ability to change the behavior of another person because they are a leader, and they're quiet, not only are they complicit, and not only as their position of authority should mandate them, they should have tried to stop it. Moreover, they're actually more guilty than the people themselves, which is a pretty astonishing idea. It does show us, of course, the just just the responsibility of, of a leader. It's not just that you have the ability to influence, it's you, you must influence, and if you don't, you're just as guilty, if not guiltier, than the, your subjects who are behaving improperly. You know, we could say, quite simply, maybe we're not leaders of the Jewish people, but in our home, you know, as parents, we see our children, and our objective is, and our responsibility is, to try to educate them, and to make them good people, and to make them into tzaddikim, and to make them righteous, and to make them successful. But the idea is, is that if they're not successful, yes, of course, it's their fault, but you know whose fault it is maybe even more? It's the parents. Because the parents, that was your job, and that is the standard that you're held to. If, you're, if your subjects make a mistake, if your subjects err, it's your responsibility to bring them back in the fold. And if they don't, then you're held accountable. Now, the next uh, 30-odd verses deal with uh, the divvying up, the division of the spoils, and it gives the exact numbers of how much gold and how much silver and how much uh, animals and how many captives uh, were assembled from the booty, and it was all divided up. 50% 50% given to the 12,000 of the tri- uh, 12,000 warriors and 50% given to everyone else. Of course, if someone contributed themselves and risked their lives in battle, they should have a greater share of the spoils. Now, there's another important law here that's snuck in, and that is the law of koshering utensils. Moshe uh, tells the Jewish people. It actually comes through Elazar. The gold, the silver, the copper, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that is metal, everything that comes into a fire, you have to pass it through the fire to purify it. And everything that does not come into the fire, you should pass through water. So there is a halacha, and this is the source of the halacha, that if you have a vessel that comes from a non-Jewish source, it may have non-kosher food, let's say, in it, you have to burn it out. Uh, So let's say if it's a pot, 
and the pot was heated with non-kosher food. Well, how do you remove that flavor of the food from the walls of the pot? You have to burn it, just like it was in a hot pot, and that's how how the taste, so to speak, and the influence got absorbed in the walls of the pot. The same way that it is done, it is undone. And now if there is no, uh, or there's no concern that this was heated, there's no, uh, the pot was never used, for example, and it's just dunked in water, and that's why we have a law today. You buy any new silverware, for example, uh, from a non-Jew that you suspect perhaps they used it for, who knows what they used it for, there's the mitzvah, as evident over here in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Torah, in the parsha to immerse it in water before you use it. Uh, back to the spoils, it goes lists the exact numbers of the animals and the livestock and the, the gold, etc. And the, the division plus a certain amount was given to the Kohanes and a certain amount was given to the Levites. And now, uh, chapter 32 tells a really, really fascinating um, episode with the sons, with the with tribe of Reuven and the tribe of Gad. Uh, these were two of the 12 tribes. And after this, this war, then the num- they, for whatever reason, they ended up with an enormous amount of livestock, of cattle, and they were now in the eastern bank of the Jordan River, and they have subdued the, their enemies, uh, the local indigenous people. They just had a whole series of wars with them. And now they have captured the land. So they say, wait a minute, this land is actually very luscious land. It's perfectly suited for animals, for grazing, for livestock, um, for cattle, and for sheep. We want to stay here. And they come to motion. They say, wait a minute. Can we pitch our tent over here in these cities that are so suited for animals, for livestock, and we have lots of livestock? And they ask Moshe, we don't want to go across the Jordan. We don't want to go to Israel. And Moshe, he responds with, uh, with this tirade. He tells them, wait a minute. In verse verse six, the classic verse. Moshe said to the sons of God and the sons of Reuven, to the tribe of God, your brothers will go to war. You'll you'll sit over here quietly, peacefully, peaceably. It's unconscionable to suggest that your brothers, yes, these are your different tribes, but these are your your Jewish brethren. They're going to have to go into Israel. And there's seven mighty nations there and 31 different city-states. And they're going to have to engage and pursue in a lengthy battle and protracted war. And you're going to sit here on the Eastern Bank in tranquility and peace and serenity while your brothers are fighting for their lives in the other side of the Jordan River? And also, he, he, he says, he tells them, he reminds them, this is not the first time people were hesitant to go to the land of Israel. It happened 40 years ago with the with the sin of the spies. The spies didn't want to go in, and look what happened to them. Do you want to follow their their path? You remember what happened to the, the, the spies? What kind of tragedies resulted in uh, 
the aftermath of that episode where they didn't want to go into Israel, everyone of that generation is dead, with the exception of Kalev and Joshua. And everyone else has passed. Are you telling are you telling me that you want to follow that plan? And they respond, no, we don't we just want to stay here long term. But we don't uh, we don't want to uh, uh, leave our brethren alone. We're going to join the battle, and we're going to cross the Jordan with our brethren. We're going to partake in the wars of conquest, and additionally in the division, because after the conquest of the land, there had to be a very lengthy division process where every tribe is allocated their share and every family is given their portion. Only after that is done are we going to return back to the Jordan. But long term, we want to stay on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. And Moshe agrees, and this is the famous pact, famous agreement uh, and condition of the sons of God and the sons of Ruvain, where Moshe tells them that, okay, this is the deal. If you decide, as you pledge, to go across the Jordan and to go participate in the war and and to oversee the division, then you're entitled to this land over here. But if not, then not. And there's a few interesting things to point out over here. In verse 16, when their request is clarified, they tell Moshe, we're going to build pens for our flock and cities for our children. You'll notice, what did they ask? What, what did they say first? First they said, let us build... Let us, let, let us build pens for the flock. First they're worried about their animals, and only then do they talk about cities for their children. What they're doing here is, they're showing their priorities. Their priorities, apparently, from the order of, of requests, is first their animals and only then their children. Now, when Moshe, when he, when he clarifies, when he makes the deal in verse 24, first he presents, build cities for your children, and only then does he say, build pens for your flock. This is an important lesson. What these people are demonstrating subliminally, they might not even realize this, they're un- unconsciously saying this, is that their money, their property, was more important to them than their children. Now, even though there is an idea where someone recognizes that money that is hard-earned, that you worked honestly and, diff- and hard for, is something that is very precious... And for example, the Talmud tells us about Jacob, that his, he valued his money, even went across the river Yabok to find pachim katanim, small little jars that he left there, even though he was a very wealthy man. Because someone who is a tzaddik, who earns his money righteously, is someone who is very careful with said money. Still, perhaps we can suggest that here, these people didn't work hard for, the, for their money, they just... They, uh, these are the spoils of war. This is the boot that they, that, that they worked really, maybe even easily for. Many of them, of course, didn't participate in the war at all. 
and therefore does not have this quality where it's appropriate to say that the money is more valuable than uh, than their bodies or certainly not their children. And that's the idea. The idea is 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 ironed out that the tribe of God, the tribe of Ruvain, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, they're going to stay in the eastern bank of the Jordan River, and the the, the verse lists uh, all the various cities they're going to build there, and they pledge that when the tribe, when the nation actually crosses, they're going to cross with them, and indeed, if you look at the book of Joshua, it does give the epilogue of the story, the tribe of God, the tribe of Ruvain, half the tribe of Manasseh, they actually participate in the war, and they awaited out the division of the land, and only then did they return east to their families and to their property to live permanently on the eastern bank of the Jordan. That's the end of Parshas Mas- uh, Matos. Parshas Masse, the journeys, begins with a very long delineation of the various pit stops of the nation since Egypt. And the Ramban, so it gives actually, I think there's 42 different cities or stops where the Jewish people went, 42 different encampments. And the Ramban, uh, in the beginning of the parish, of course, asked the obvious question, why is it necessary to give us this very long account, 50-some-odd verses? Um, it goes up to verse 50, yes, yeah, so about 50 verses, uh, telling us how the Jewish people from Egypt, at every stop along the way, until they, where they are right now in the plains of Moab, facing Jericho on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, well, why is it necessary to tell us? Uh, so Ramban, in the beginning of the parasha, he tells us that um, that the, the, the lesson is that to make it more tangible, to make it more palpable, to make it more real... When we see all these names, it's not just, you know, it's it's not just that we talk about, oh, the Jewish people were in the wilderness. No, like this was a 40 years of journeys from one place to another place. It makes the story real. And I think it's important to do that, you know, generally. This is a magnificent time in history, 40 years, a nation of million millions of people, you know, 600,000 adult males, there's still children and there's still women, and there's still old people. There's a lot of people here. And for 40 years, they're in the wilderness, and what are they subsisting on? Manna from heaven. Just think about how many meals it is. You take a nation of, let's say, a million or two million people, three meals a day, times 40 years. We're We're talking about billions and billions served. We're talking about just, this is not like a one time miracle that manna came from heaven once. This is what subsisted the nation for 40 years. And drinking water out of magical wells or, or out of a rock. And the verse tells us that their clothing did not, uh, did not wear out. It grew with them. There's this magical cloud that's flattening the entire surrounding area that's ensconcing them by day. And at night, there's a pillar of fire protecting them. This is an incredible time in history to think about that. And here you read, like, this is actual places where they stopped and everything that happened to them along the way. It's important for us to just take a, take a moment and to just consider the magnitude of, of this episode, 
uh, of our history. Uh, a nation of millions following God into the wilderness. In fact, in, in the Haftorah we just read yesterday, the Haftorah says, it talks about the praise of the Jewish people. We walked into the wilderness with our eyes closed, so to speak, following God into the desert because we have faith in him. And indeed, he delivered by sustaining us in a miraculous way over the course of these 40 years. Now, uh, verse 50 is now, now now we, after they delineated, after they enumerated all the various stops along the way, and now the Almighty tells Moshe to tell the Jewish people, you're about to cross the Jordan to go into the land of Canaan. You're going to drive out all the inhabitants from the land of Canaan, destroy all their idols, all their images, all their places of worship. It's important for the Jewish nation to fulfill their destiny in the land of Israel that they don't have any other influences that are competing with their destiny and their legacy. And then verse 33, I'm sorry, 53, tells us, you shall possess the land, you shall settle in it, for to you I have given the land to possess it. This is the source of the mitzvah in the Torah that we are mandated to live in the land of Israel. There's actually a mitzvah for us to possess it. And the Ramban, of course, is very famous for arguing on the Rambam, the Rambam in his book of mitzvos, where he delineates all 630 mitzvos, says the Ramban in his commentary on that book that Rambam omitted the mitzvah of conquering and settling the land of Israel. It seems that Rambam understood this verse to mean that this is only limited to the people that Moshe was speaking to. You know, Joshua is going to go conquer the land, and that's the mitzvah, conquer the land and settle it. But the Ramban learns that this mitzvah is even present and applicable today. Today, as Jews in 2017, there's a mitzvah for us to go and conquer and, and settle the land, which is, by the way, to get into like the, the political uh, ethos of, of the modern state of Israel, the quote-unquote settlers the people who live in the quote-unquote occupied territories, the territories conquered by Israel in the Six-Day War, 1967, 50 years ago, they are motivated by this mitzvah. They say, wait a minute, there's a mitzvah in the Torah to say that we should control the land, we should conquer the land, it's our land, and we have a responsibility mitzvah to not forfeit any little bit of it. Well, it's, 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 it's a mitzvah in the Torah, and here's the source. And in fact, uh, chapter 34 actually outlines the borders of, uh, of, of the land of Israel, and that's the greater Israel movement. They look at Israel in a very religious uh, lens, and they say, wait a minute, look at the end of the book of Numbers, look what the Almighty gave us, and how could we give it away to anyone else? It's our land. It's our ancestral land. It's the land of dust by God. And we're not forfeiting even a square inch of it. Whereas the other camp, they would say to you, okay, yes, sure, it's a mitzvah of the Torah, and maybe it is technically ours, but if there's going to be a way to save Jewish blood and to achieve peace with our neighbors, maybe under those conditions, it would be prudent to 
so to speak, hold our nose and give up some land if that giving up the land is going to result in peace. Uh, chapter 35 talks about cities for the Levites. So all 12 tribes are given uh, various blocks of land in Israel. However, the tribe of Levi, which is the 13th tribe, because the tribe of Joseph is split into two, the tribe of Levi is not given anything, any ancestral land. However, chapter 35 tells us that they're given um, cities all across the land and also the outskirts of the cities. How many cities? 42 cities given to the Levites. I once heard a lecture where the lecturer wanted to posit that everyone talks about the Levites getting a a bad shape. They only get a couple of cities, but not a uh, a plot of land of their own. He did the math, and he wanted to suggest that actually the 42 cities of the Levites are actually much larger territorially than uh, any one of the uh, other tribes, what they received. Regardless, every tribe is going to contribute a certain amount of cities to the Levites, and the uh, the perhaps we could suggest that the argument behind the theory of this is that the Levites, well, they're the spiritual leaders of the people, and to effectively influence the nation, you have to go to them. And if you have the Levites, let's say, they're in southern Israel, and their mandate, their mitzvah is to teach Torah and to influence the whole nation but they're hundreds of miles away how could they effectively do their duty however if they're interspersed if they're scattered throughout Israel every tribe has a few cities within it that are cities populated by the spiritual leaders of the nation then they could indeed have their influence go forth from amongst the nation um, okay, now, and then final, uh, I don't know if that's quite the final thing, but the, um, the next item on, uh, in, in, uh, in the parsha are the cities of refuge. So the halacha is, if someone kills someone, and there's witnesses, and there is, uh, warning, and they're brought to court, murder is a capital offense in Torah. However, what about accidental murder, or negligent murder? Someone was negligent, and therefore that resulted in someone else dying. And of course, there's many, many laws attached to that, but the general idea is that if someone is an accidental murderer, but in a way that they could have, they could have avoided it, 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 could have been, it was an avoidable murder, but it was, it was not intentional, then they have to relocate. They have to move to a designated city, and there's six of them where they have to stay there until the Kohen Gadol dies. It really seems like a strange law that these cities are, are designated cities where someone who killed accidentally goes to, and they're there, they have to stay there until the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, dies. And if they leave, then uh, and the relatives of the of the deceased of the person they accidentally killed find them and they kill them then the relatives of the deceased are not guilty so it's not that they're mandated 
mandated to kill them. It's just that if they do that, they cannot be tried in court. So basically, it was uh, when someone when someone murders accidentally, and they must go to a city of refuge. But also, the city of refuge is a refuge for them. It saves them from the uh, wrath of the relatives of the person that they accidentally killed. So it kind of has this dual function. On one hand, it's a city of refuge. It's a place where they could be saved. On the other hand, it's a punishment they cannot leave there. Uh, now, what does the fact that the Kohen Gadol dies, what does that have to do with anything? So the Talmud tells us, very famous Talmud, the book of Makros, that the Kohen Gadol is someone who is the spiritual leader of the people. And therefore, uh, it's like verse 25 says, they have to be there until the Kohen Gadol dies. Well, what does the Kohen Gadol's, what does the high priest's death have to do with this whole story of a person killing accidentally? So the Talmud tells us that, and quoted by Rashi, the responsibility of the high priest is to pray that such a tragedy does not happen under his watch. Why? Why should the Kohen Gadol pray that somewhere in Israel or somewhere amongst the nation there shouldn't be someone who kills accidentally? And the idea is, similar to the idea we spoke about earlier, that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, because he is the spiritual leader of the entire nation, all the Jewish people are, so to speak, his subjects, his constituents on a spiritual level. Therefore, he is spiritually responsible for all of them. The general rule is, whomever has greater responsibility, with greater responsibility, with greater reign, becomes a greater need to be concerned and to pray for your constituents, for your subjects. A parent is morally obligated to pay for their child. Why? Because you're responsible for them, you have to pay for them. A teacher is morally obligated to pay for his students. A king, certainly, is morally obligated to pray for his subjects. And a coin Gadol, who is the spiritual leader of the people, must pray for all the Jewish people that they should that they should uh, thrive and they should be successful and they sh- no one should get hurt. If someone does get hurt under their watch, they have a degree of culpability. They're responsible to a degree and therefore that person's Punishment is linked to them as well. And uh, finally, the Parsha and the book ends with a discussion of tribal intermarriage. Last week, we talked about the daughters of Tzalafchad. These are women, five daughters, whose father died in the wilderness. They didn't have any brothers, and they wanted to know if they could be granted a portion in the land of Israel in uh, instead, or in the stead of their dad, of their father. And Moshe consulted the Almighty. The Almighty said, yes, if a man dies and doesn't have any sons, then his daughters inherit his ancestral homeland. But now the heads of the tribe of Menashe, uh, to whom the, this family, that Slavchot family, were members, of whom they were members, they came to Moshe with a, with a quandary. They were concerned these women, they could marry whomever they want. What if they marry someone who's not part of our tribe? 
Then there's going to be an exclave in our tribe, in the land of a portion to our tribe, belonging to a different tribe. Because uh, suppose one of the daughters of Tzlavchad marries from the tribe of Naphtali. So, and then, you know, she has a big, nice family, and she owns a plot of land in the tribe of Manasseh. And then she dies. Well, who, who does that go to? It goes to her sons. And her sons are from the tribe of Naphtali. So then says the tribe of Manasseh, we don't want to have our tribal lands be diminished by having ownership of other tribes um, in it. So therefore, Moshe accedes to their request, and he tells them, and he tells the daughters of Tzlavchad, you can marry whomever you want, provided that they come from the tribe of your father to not diminish the amount of land of the tribe. And indeed, this became the custom for the Jewish nation for several hundred years afterwards that people would only marry into their tribe uh, because there was a concern that uh, if they marry out of the tribe, then the tribal and ancestral lands are going to be uh, upended. And, of course, uh, you know, to, to, to find appropriate spouses for everyone in the nation is difficult enough without any restrictions. With the added restriction of limiting it to these tri- tribal members only, that caused some problems. And uh, sometime later, they revoked this requirement and they opened the door, everyone, anyone can marry as long as they're part of the Jewish people. doesn't matter which tribe it is, they, uh, that would be allowed. That was the famous uh, day of the 15th of Av, a day that became synonymous with trying to find spouses for people. Today, it's, of course, it's one of great mitzvos. When someone dies, the Talmud tells us in the book of Shabbos that there are six questions that are asked to them. One of them is... Asakta bepru uravu. Did you engage in procreation? Says the commentaries, Marsha, for example. He tells us that what? Well, wait a minute. Some people they try to participate in procreation, and sometimes biologically they're incapable of doing it. So how could someone be held accountable for a mitzvah that they didn't fulfill that they were not, they were unable to fulfill? Says the Marsha. What this really means is, did you try to enable other people to? meet and marry and thus procreate? Did you contribute towards the enlargening or the augmenting of our nation by helping people marry each other? So we see it's a great mitzvah and that day, the 15th day of Av, where this uh, this statute was revoked uh, was a day of great celebration, a day where this theme of trying to find spouses for single people uh, was uh, celebrated. The Parsha concludes, and indeed the book concludes, these are the mitzvos and the laws that Hashem commanded in the hands of Moshe to the Jewish people in the plains of Moab on the Jordan River facing Jericho, Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazek. We have completed the book of Bamidbar. We're 80% of the way to the end of the Torah. Very exciting. Thank you all for participating. As always, you can email me, RabbiWolby, at gmail.com. Check out my other podcasts. I have a Jewish history podcast, uh, 35 or 36 episodes in, uh, various issues of Jewish history, individuals, events, personalities, themes, 
uh, Parsha podcast that you're listening to right now, uh, the This Jewish Life, which is a motley mix of various uh, areas of Jewish philosophy, uh, Torah 101, which is an introduction to Torah on a very fundamental level. Uh, what is Torah? How do we know it's true? What is oral Torah? How do they, how do they interrelate? Uh, and maybe there's going to be some new podcasts down the road. And as well, if you're interested in supporting us, please go to the website torchweb.org and go to the Support Us page of the website. And the link is going to be in the description of this podcast and in every podcast. Thank you so much for your support.